You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belial and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician and editor-in-chief of Maine, Maine Home and Design, Oldport, Ageless, and Moxie Magazines. Love, Maine Radio show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormaine.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by... Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Paul Cousins is the founder, principal, and CFO at Atmos Forecast, a meteorologist consulting company based in Portland. He has been analyzing weather in the Northeast for over 40 years. Thanks for coming in. You're quite welcome, and I'm still analyzing it, and I hope to get it right someday. Well, it seems a little bit like my field of medicine, where you're always going to be learning new things, and technology is going to change, and, you know, it's, it's probably never a place where you're going to get to say, I know everything about this. That's right. The learning curve is, uh, there is no end in sight, right? Yeah, which is exciting. It, absolutely. So why weather? Why were you interested in this in the first place? I, I'm sure it had to do with um, my youth and my large family, many brothers. Um, the myth is that I was baptized in my crib during Hurricane Carol. Um, I'm dating myself again in the 50s. My grandmother's house, the roof leaked, was baptized by a hurricane. And so as a very young child, my mother was always kicking us out of the house because she needed some space. So we were always, you know, playing outside any sports or on the beach and when the weather turned inclement my father would rope us in and get us out of harm's way and I recall as a very young young um, sprite he would sit us on his knee and we'd watch storms roll across the bay we're down the south shore of Massachusetts and watching lightning strikes ping the surface of the bay and everything just turned white this aureole of you know charged water and I thought that was fascinating so we every time there was a thunderstorm we said dad porch view and that's where it all began and then of course everything we did outside was weather dependent you know summer sports winter sports skating you name it so I was very highly tuned attuned to you know the local day-to-day vagaries of weather and um, it was I think in junior high school I was a budding young science nerd and I was fascinated by the weather and I took a mentor on public television on no commercial television in Boston his name was Don Kent he was one of the first broadcast meteorologists in the country and I took quite a liking to the way he presented weather and to make a long story short I struck up a relationship with him and he became my mentor and I would visit him once every year and the studios of WBZ TV in Boston, and we talked shop, and we became really great friends over about a 10-year period. I said, Paul, what are you, you going to do with yourself? You're going to graduate from high school? He said, go into solar energy. Well, back in the day, that was, that was you know, a crazy thing to do. That was almost heretical <laughs> as a concept. And I said, no, I want to do what you do, Don. I want to be a television meteorologist. He said, Paul, it's crazy. It's 
40% science and 60% showbiz. And of course, I was thunderstruck to part the expression. And so I, I went to Middlebury as a geophysicist and enjoyed it, but I graduated, worked for uh, the U.S. Geological Survey on Woods Hole for a year or two, and I said, I, I miss weather too much. And went back to school and got a degree, and the circle became very short within a few years of obtaining a, a degree in meteorology. I was contacted by um, the news director at WBZ-TV in Boston, and they wanted me to come down to audition because Don Kent, my mentor, was retiring. Lo and behold, I got the job. So here, my childhood mentor was retiring, and I was going to make an attempt to fill his shoes, which was virtually impossible. But we had a ball for two weeks in his retirement party. He and I were on the air together every day. Talk about a dream come true. And then the rest is history. I just stayed in the industry. Never, never regretted it for a minute. A geophysicist. That's a very, that sounds like quite a hefty scientific It was. Uh, the calculus major. just about killed me. Um, but there's a lot of math and physics. Um, I was working for the Geological Survey at a time when the United States was considering leasing the eastern shelf to oil companies for exploratory drilling. And you can imagine that environmentalists were quite concerned at the time. Still are. So we were... Um, uh, charged by the Bureau of Land Management to do a lot of uh, research out there to see how stable the continental shelf was. You guys are going to put oil rigs out there. What are the waves like? What's the bottom like? We found out it was a very turbulent area. There were sand dunes 20 to 30 feet high that would migrate across the continental shelf. Can you imagine what that would do to an oil rig? <laughs> and to say nothing about the 100-year storms, which turned out they happened every couple of years, Sandy is not that unique. That was five years ago. Um, so we found there was cutting-edge science back in the 70s. Fascinating. We'd spend weeks at sea uh, doing exploratory drilling to find out uh, the stability of the strata and, and monitoring currents and waves. Worked with a lot of redneck crews from the bayou. They were a hoot. <laughs> I learned a lot from these crews uh, from the deep south while we were at sea for, for weeks at a time. But at any rate, it was, it was a fascinating time with the U.S. Geological Survey, but weather was still burning a hole in my in my back pocket, so I left and went back to school. It seems as though weather, um, at least broadcast weather, has changed quite a quite a lot in Absolutely. the last thirty years. Absolutely. Now, I I couldn't speak um, with total accuracy at how it's changed, but when I was in the business, we had two and then three newscasts a day. With hours in between. I, I'm multitask. I did a lot of radio work on my own volition. But now, when I, what I understand from my associates, who I still chat with from time to time, you have five or six newscasts a day. You're working for two or three television stations. You're blogging. You're, you're, you're maintaining other websites, um, doing radio. You know, it's nonstop. So, so I guess it's nine or ten hours straight. Barely enough time to you know, um, tie your shoes. You were with WCSH? Uh, initially. Initially. And then I went to Hartford and Boston and then came back to uh, GME. So why decide that you wanted to do something so different for yourself with your current well, My consultancy? Yeah. Um, 
Actually, when I began my stint at GME in the 80s, I, I launched a large radio clientele. I launched the, the weather column and the Portland Press Herald. No one was doing it. And I was enjoying the freelance work. Um, and I was also uh, advising a lot of municipalities and large um, construction companies and uh, Bath Iron Works, Central Maine Power, weather-sensitive industries. And it became quite a full boat. And it was fascinating, and I was an entrepreneur. I was my own boss. And so I thought, you know, this television industry, it's great, but it's changing, and I think I should make room for some young blood. And so my consultancy was certainly uh, well fleshed out so I could um, pursue that as a, as a sustainable profession. What about the broadcasting piece of it do you miss? The camaraderie, without a doubt. Miss that a lot. Because I work for myself in a home office with a very simple broadcast studio. There's no one there but me, the microphone, and I. But the bulk of my work is really consulting for industry and the energy uh, companies and our litigious community. I do a lot of uh, consulting for attorneys and insurance companies, which I never thought would be so um, um, engaging. Well, tell me about that. What does it mean to be someone who consults on the weather? The the term is called a forensic meteorologist. A lot of it is weather event reconstruction. Let's say someone slips on a sidewalk. Was someone negligent and not sanding or salting or plowing? But the far more interesting cases I've had, um, uh, I think it was when Hurricane Floyd passed through Maine 15, 20 years ago. Uh, A fellow had a deer herd up in Jefferson, and the allegation was that lightning bolt struck a pole near where all the deer were congregating and they were electrocuted and they died. So the owner quickly um, buried all the deer in a mass grave to, so that uh, the, they would not um, infect the rest of the herd. You know, well, the insurance company said, ah, just wait a minute. First of all, was there lightning that struck your um, yard, deer yard? Um, and so that was my, I was, um, you know, charged with determining whether or not that happened. And they also brought in a, a veterinarian and they exhumed the deer, found that the deer had some illness prior to the date of this storm. So it turned out that this fellow was actually trying to um, collect insurance proceeds for something that was not a natural cause, the deer were sick and died from this disease. That was an interesting case. And there have been many others, but that happened in Maine, and I've testified in Superior Court in Vermont. I mean, there have been a lot of very engaging things that have happened. The funny story, when I was in Superior Court in Vermont, this high-powered row of attorneys from Boston were were, um, representing the plaintiff, and I was representing the defendant, small construction company in Northern Vermont. And there are laying out their grand case and the judge is sitting there and he turns to me and he looks at my resume would you happen to know this professor at Middlebury said yes he was the greatest guy so he started talking to me at sidebar and the attorneys from Boston were flabbergasted what's the judge doing talking to this witness on the stand many many funny things have happened in and out of court and on and off the air 
So I'm interested in this this person that attempted to uh, get his dead deer paid for, and the idea that insurance fraud, pure and simple. Well, but the idea that in this day and age you could actually claim that something weather related occurred, um, and think that nobody else is going to know whether you're right or not. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a common thing, or do most people accept that with the technology we have, we can reconstruct things? Uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, there are skeptics who don't want to believe the data, and then you can say the data can be interpreted in a number of different ways. So there's still, even if you testify that, for example, there was a lightning strike or there wasn't a lightning strike, mm-hmm. you can still have people who can question whether you are accurate right. in your Did statements. Right. Did that gauge really catch every lightning strike within a 10-mile radius? You know, anything can be questioned. So why forensic meteorology? Why that as opposed to other types of meteorology? Well, that's just, that's probably one-third of the time I spend. Most of what I uh, do is push a very sharp pencil for a lot of utilities uh, in New York, Connecticut, and Maine, and energy providers. Um, They need to know heating degree day information. Uh, That's the day-to-day gist of, of what I do. And main public broadcasting. That's that's the entertainment mouthpiece. So what types of things do these energy companies need to know? Well, uh, when you, and for example, Bath Ironworks, when you have 5,000 employees and they're looking at shift changes and so forth, um, they have to plan ahead, um, both in terms of maintaining their physical plant, uh, when to call in shifts early, let them go early, um, water levels in the Kennebec, they need to know about that. Occasionally they have sea trials. They want to ping on me to determine sea state and so forth, and visibility ranges. So it's fascinating. And, uh, and for central Maine power, it's wind, lightning, icing, you know, all the concerns that have been very real this winter, again. How accurate are you able to be? Oh, I would be disingenuous if I said I was better than 90%. But that's still pretty good. I hope so. Um, they renew my contract from year to year, so I guess that speaks for itself. No, I've been I've been doing this now for thirty years. So there's some amount of looking at the information that you have access to, and then there's oh, it's phenomenal. But there's also some amount of your experience that enables you to kind of translate that information. I, correctly. I would like to think so. Uh, I think the biggest challenge for a modern day meteorologist is to decide which information. Uh, to review and digest because there is a plethora of data out there simply overwhelmed you know on a on a 24 7 basis which is marvelous one thing I do miss um, are a set of eyes to actually see the weather and record it Um, we used to have thousands of weather observers that were part of uh, NOAA's cooperative observing program there's still several dozen out there, but most of them have retired, and now we rely on uh, telemetrics, you know, sensors. Never as good as a pair of eyes, but the data network is actually more robust than uh, the actual physical observers of decades ago. But nothing replaces a pair of eyes and observing what is actually transpiring at any given location. And I use that data a lot for weather event reconstruction. I recently spoke with Robin Alden, who worked for 40 years with um, fishermen off the coast of Maine. Ah. And one of the things that she talked about was this idea that 
people with their eyes mm-hmm. could make observations that um, really nicely complemented the science that was out there. Absolutely. So it seems as though maybe we could find benefit from both. Do you think this will ever come back? I highly doubt it uh, for two reasons. Manpower is expensive and the, t- the technology for these um, you know, remote transmitting devices continues to improve. We have a dozen buoys out in the Gulf of Maine that transmit you know, wave heights, wind direction, speed, gusts, uh, seawater salinity, I mean, uh, currents, a plethora of data. So they're, they're really good. So you're saying that we might not actually need these eyes. No, uh, well, I, I just don't see it happening. <laughs> I would love to see uh, observers return. I mean, you used to have uh, ships out there who'd, who'd report in every hour what the sea state was and how much freezing spray there was. Now we have to make an educated guess based on the telemetry that's radioed in, you know, in some cases every 15 minutes. It's really quite remarkable. You have an interest in the water. You actually... Um when we asked who you think we should recognize for the job they do in our community, you said um, the Friends of Casco Bay. They do a terrific job. So why, why in particular that group? You must work with so many groups around the state, but you think that they're worthy of recognition in particular. Well, I, I think it's probably a, um, an area which I really cherish, having been boating on this bay for 30 years. It's really a jewel. And every time I sit out there quietly at anchor, Nothing's moving, nothing's turned on, and just see the splendor, realizing how fortunate we are to have this 15 minutes from my doorstep and people travel across the country to see this beautiful body of water, which now is, you know, burgeoning with aquaculture. You know, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's, and my concern is now with, with climate change and the warming and the green crab invasion and, and the acidification of the water. We're losing soft-shell clams. These are all manifestations of climate change. So when people out there say that climate change is not real, I'm not one of these people, but I know it is being said, how do you uh, kind of mentally work with that? <laughs> oh, um, I first of all I gauge the tenor of this individual. How malleable are they? <laughs> and we're questionable. Uh, believe it or not, 30 years ago I was a skeptic. I, as a geologist, I had seen through paleoclimatological records the, the the climate on this Earth changed dramatically over millions of years. We've known about ice ages coming and going for millions of years. I mean, all of North America was under ice millions of years ago. So I thought, hey, it's a natural change. It has to do with the sun's radiant energy and the tilt of the earth and all those other pieces. But over time, um, listening to professionals who know much more about the intricacies of our, our global circulation system, I said, I, there's just no way I can deny this anymore. I mean, just look at the carbon dioxide trace in the last 40 years. We've gone from 360 to 400 parts per million. That's not natural. That's purely anthropogenic forcing, burning fossil fuels. There's no question in my mind. So does it ever frustrate you when you hear people suggest that we shouldn't pay attention to this because it, it's just pretend? Certainly, but if they don't believe that climate change is occurring, I'm not going to take up that argument. You know, you pick your battles, right? (laughs) You and I um, share a connection in that your your family from many generations ago uh, was actually 
responsible for founding, or at least being an early settling family of Cousins Island. And I live off Cousins Island. So that's a really special connection that you have with the state of Maine. Yes. You originally, um, you told me that your, it was a great-grandfather. Eight. Eight great-grandfather. Eighth great-grandfather was originally off of Cousins. His last name is obviously Cousins, and was somehow too friendly with the Native Americans and sent up the coast and originally um, landed in Ellsworth, but then found his way to Bar Harbor. Is that right? That is correct. So He he was booted out of one town from another. First in in Plymouth Colony, Mass Bay Colony, he was too friendly with the Indians. John Cousins, go. Settled in, in... Cousins and the locals said, John Cousins, go. But I think when he got up to Ellsworth, he decided, hey, this Bar Harbor is a pretty nice place. I'm heading down there. And then he stayed, and then the family generations rippled on and on and on. Isn't that a strange thing to think about that one could be too friendly with the Native American population? I think he must have been some sort of ambassador <laughs> or is trying to strike up commerce. Who knows what his agenda was? And it was some sort of a threat to people who were coming in later to settle the land. Maybe he's just trying to pave the way for colonization. I, I don't know. There, I, no one has ever written uh, the history of the treatise of John Cousins and his um, ambassador tendencies. Well, I find this all very interesting because I just wrote a story for Maine Magazine about Turner Farm, which is located on North Haven. Oh, really? And they found evidence of the um, a group they're calling the Red Paint Indians. Um, really? From 7,000 years ago. So ah. we have this very interesting and old history of our state that I think a lot of us don't often ponder. 7,000 years ago. So these preceded the, the, the Norwegians and the Vikings then, the yeah, Norsemen. Absolutely. Wow. And, and this is about the extent of my background. I just thought it was very interesting. That absolutely. This is, we think about um, colonization as going back a few hundred years, but there were colonies that already existed. They right. just were before the people who came over on boats. And didn't you wish you bought a couple of acres back in the day? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to. I'm happy well, well to you're sh- in a great spot if you're up near Cousins Island. I mean, it's spectacular. As I told you, I think Casco Bay is a jewel. It is a jewel, yeah. So are you happy that you ended up coming back to the state that your family was originally from? I'm happy to be here because of the quality of life. I mean, it's just ancillary that... Um, None of my relatives. Actually, I think I have a, a great aunt who lives um, near Southwest Harbor, but otherwise, I don't have any living relatives in the state any longer. And how is the quality of life different here than where you lived in other places? Well, when I grew up outside of Boston, I, I grew up outside of Boston, came back to Boston as a professional. Um, it was fun to think that I was actually coming home. I just found the intensity of of the lifestyle and the congestion unpalatable and I couldn't get from my home outside of Boston to the water in 15 minutes nor could I get from my home to Sugarloaf or Sunday River in 15 minutes it's a lot closer in Portland than it is outside of Boston and you've been skiing you said in in Sunday River from oh when they had tea bars and one tiny little base lodge that's a few years ago oh absolutely so how have you seen Maine change? You talked about living in outside of Boston, and obviously there was a lot of changes over the years as a result of people coming in and living and working. How is Maine changing? Um, well, it's certainly becoming 
more populated. And I used to be able to zip downtown in 10 minutes. Now it takes a half an hour. Um, obviously, everybody wants a piece of the pie. You can't blame them. It's spectacular. Um, fortunately, where I live, it hasn't changed much. There are neighborhoods going around, but the schools are still pretty much the same. In fact, I occasionally uh, substitute in the Falmouth schools, and some of the teachers that taught my two children are still there, which is just phenomenal. Tell me what your favorite, I guess, um, weather activity has been over the last, we'll give it five years, because you yeah. must have some, fa- when by weather activity, I mean... <clears throat> Events, things that we oh, have all been boy. impacted by. Well, we missed Sandy here. That was a, a near miss for Maine. Um, I think Irene was pretty impacting, even though, again, that affected weather, western New England more than Maine. That was a pretty significant storm. And, of course, when these storms are approaching, I'm on, you know, DEFCON 4, full alert. My clients just can't get enough of me, which is great. Uh, because I feel like I'm contributing to storm preparation and so forth and mitigating uh, loss of property and so forth. So obviously the major storms are um, a rush. Is is that the question you're asking? Yeah, and I guess even as I said it, I I realize saying your favorite storm is probably kind of weird because Because a lot of people are... People's least favorite events. Yeah, I mean, a (laughs) lot of people really are impacted negatively by these Mm -hmm. storms. Oh, absolutely. I I don't discount that for a minute. So what is it about these major storms that energizes you in some way? Oh, well, I mean, just to see the the atmosphere um, throw us such a curveball and to see all of these elements come together in concert to create, you know, such a dramatic natural environmental calamity. I mean, you've got to think that the forces of nature are just insurmountable. And we really are at the mercy entirely of Mother Nature. Is that something that you think we forget? Well, in our very technologically advanced and insulated um, lifestyle, I think a lot of people have lost touch with the fact that, um, you know, weather events are significant and due to climate change they're going to become more extreme and more frequent and we should prepare for that. We are just coming off of um, what was called a, I believe it was a bomb cyclone, a major weather event. Mm-hmm. Bombogenesis. We'll bom- see more, bombogenesis. more and more of those. Talk to me about that. Well, as the, as the, uh, the climate warms, um, Air temperatures rise, sea, sea surface temperatures rise, and ocean temperatures rise. We're, we're enabling the global um, climate to um, harbor more energy, more potential energy with these higher temperatures. So when we have the right, what's the word, collusion of weather elements, you're going to get a bigger, a bigger play. And this is something that impacted not only um, our part of the world, but really was all the way down into Florida where they got snow. Snow in northern Florida this last week. Yeah, that's pretty rare. And they had snow in southern Louisiana. What did I see the first time in two decades? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's weather extremes are going to become more prevalent, both hot and cold, wet and dry. I mean, look, look at all these fires in Southern California. So that would make it very hard for us to stay prepared. If you are in Northern Florida and you, you haven't really needed to have snow plows or sanders, 
Uh, but now you're going to have these extremes of weather. That could be a very costly and um, difficult situation. I can only imagine. What do you see the next um, phase of your life looking like? You've, you've, you've done so many things over the past 30 years in this field. Well, is there anything new and interesting that you, you'd like to tackle? I'd like to have more time playing the piano. I used to play daily. Um, but now um, uh, when you work for yourself, you're 24-7, even though I don't work <laughs> nonstop. Um, I have less time than I know that I'm going to have free and clear. Um, and I'd also like to learn how to play the saxophone. I think that's one of the most sensuous instruments out there, other than the piano. But I couldn't be a three-man band with the drum and saxophone the piano. <laughs> but uh, I really enjoy music, and I enjoy both jazz and classical um, piano. I used to play in the piano bars here in Portland years ago. I just walk in. I said, anybody? Is, is someone taking that piano? And they said, no, go ahead and play. And I would play until the patrons would come in, and <laughs> sometimes they start to tip me. I said, no, no, don't bother. But that was fun. Well, I hope you have the chance to do that. I, I do, too. Yeah. Just, and it could happen. Yeah, it could happen. Mm -hmm. I've been speaking with Paul Cousins, who is the founder, principal, and CFO at Atmos Forecast, a meteorologist consulting company based in Portland. He has been analyzing weather in the Northeast for over 40 years. Thanks for taking the time to come in and for all my, the work you do. Oh, my pleasure. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kate Gardner. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Andrea King, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. <laughs>